Today is the first Sunday of Advent, a season of four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. During Advent, the church focuses her attention on the coming of Christ. Before that holy day on which we celebrate the birth of our Savior, we prepare ourselves for the day when He will come again to recreate the world He came to save. During Advent, we ready ourselves for His return, for surely He comes to judge both the living and the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous. 2,700 years ago, through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord promised his people, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. You shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. And so it was in sure hope that the prophet declared, Sing, O heavens. Sing, O earth. Break out in singing, O mountains. The Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. And so together as the church, we cry out, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you would bless your holy word, which we are about to read. We pray that you would bless its reading to our hearts and to our minds. We pray that you would minister to us in this moment, these moments, together by your Holy Spirit. And we pray all these things in the mighty and matchless name of your Son, Jesus, our King. Amen. The word of our Lord from the prophet Malachi. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked. For they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him in Horeb for all, for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Father, we thank you again for your holy word. Minister to our hearts by it, we pray. Amen. So Advent has come. And Advent is a new beginning for us. 
It's, uh, it's always funny when you um, wish somebody a happy new year on the eve of Advent because they're thinking, wait a minute, what are, what are you talking about? We got a whole nother month plus a few extra days. What are you talking about? This is the beginning, church. This is the beginning of our year. This is where it all begins. The start of another liturgical year in the calendar of the church. And think about where we begin. We don't begin where you might suspect or where you might expect. We begin not at the beginning, but at the end. And so our beginning, it's funny how all this happens. It can be confusing. Our beginning is actually toward the end of the secular calendar, right? So we're getting to the end of the calendar, but we're beginning a new calendar. Um, And you might think, oh, it begins like with the story of Jesus' birth, but not yet. That's Christmas. We're not yet to Christmas. We're still in the in-between. We're still in the waiting. Advent is not so much about the birth of Christ as it is the return of Christ. It is a season of preparation. Yes, preparation for Christmas. Preparation involving decorating and purchasing gifts and putting together lists of people you want to send cards to and all those things because Christmas is coming. But Advent is about settling our hearts before Christmas Day being reminded that this baby is no longer a baby. He is a righteous and holy king who bears the wounds, the scars of our redemption, and he is coming as our triumphant king. And when he comes, though, the prophets declare there is judgment that comes with him. And so we begin at the end, as it were. We begin at the end of the story. Jesus is coming. He is returning. This morning, as we step into this season of Advent, we begin yet again at the end. The prophet Malachi. As we reach those final few words, decree of utter destruction. You might have had chills for a moment, but you might have also noticed that the very next page probably reads the New Testament. Malachi is the very end, the end of the Old Testament, the last of the prophets. And the Old Testament ends with a, an expectation, a look out ahead toward what is to come. A Messiah is coming, one to put the world back together, and a king who can rule over all of creation in righteousness and holiness, who can bring the peace of God that he promised to restore to all of his world. So Malachi remains that that long, lasting, last voice before 400 years of silence as Israel lives in turmoil wondering, is God going to make good on His promises? 
in another way, I want us to begin at the end this morning. You know, the end of a sermon often is filled with some applicational stuff. Answering the question, so now what? You know, okay, good pastor, you've rambled on for 70 minutes. What now? I don't preach for 70 minutes. I couldn't preach for 70 minutes. Um, but yeah, sure, sometimes I can get a bit, bit long-winded. But so now what, pastor? The application. Let's begin, actually, with that. Because Advent is one of those seasons that we sometimes wonder, well, what am I to do with it? There's so much already that we're going to be doing. There's, again, there are gifts to be purchased. There are lists to be made. There are cards to be sent out. There's decorations that got to get up. You might hire somebody to come in and put up those decorations, but how are you going to pay for it? you got to work some extra hours. And so Advent is always filled with a lot of stuff. So as we begin, I want to put down some, uh, uh, I want to put down some foundational things that you can make your Advent about, which will help you to have a, a happy, yes, a holy Advent. Number one, repentance. This is a season of preparation. And as a season of preparation, it is a season in which we are called to repent before the Lord. Any, anything that we've got in our lives that needs to be dealt with needs to be dealt with now. Needs to be dealt with today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not on Christmas Day. Surely not when Jesus returns. Now. This season ought to be filled with repentance for unfaithfulness and repentance also for cynicism. Admit it. We're all a bit of cynics in the world as it is. It's broken. It's messy. If you follow politics, if you follow culture, if you engage on social media at all, there's a bit of cynicism in you, whether you like it or not. You might try to keep it hidden away, but that's something that ought to be confessed to the Lord. Because cynicism is a refusal to trust Him. That's not to say we can't be cynical about certain things, but to just be a cynical person means you don't have a lot of trust in Jesus, I'm afraid. Because He is the one who makes all things new, and He is the one who will put all things back together. Covenant faithfulness is another application. Be faithful to the covenants you have made. Covenant faithfulness to the people that God has placed in your life. Being true to them, being true to your word to them, but also covenant faithfulness to Him. These, um, these applications, by the way, come directly out of the book of Malachi, if you're wondering. Just four chapters, you ought to read it in one sitting. He's dealing with people who need to repent, and he's calling them to repentance. He's dealing with people who have been covenantally unfaithful. He's dealing with husbands that have walked away from their wives because there's another, younger, better model available. He's dealing with people who are trying to figure out, is it even worth going to the temple to worship anymore? Do we really need to sacrifice to the Lord anymore? Why in the world are we giving tithes to Him? What's He done for us lately? 
Relational restoration is another point of application for us. It's interesting that Malachi says that the coming Elijah, who is to be the messenger before the messenger, that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and turn the hearts of the children to their fathers, bringing restoration in broken, broken relationships. You know, sometimes a relationship that is broken in your life, you've got no fault in it. Sometimes you've got a little, bit of a, fault, a little bit of fault, and that needs to be admitted to. But sometimes you've got no fault in it. I've done nothing wrong. Surely not that. But even still, it is Jesus himself who tells us, if you go to make a an offering to God and you get to the altar and realize that someone else has unforgiveness toward you, leave your offering and go and do all that you can to make it right. Then come. So relational restoration. Some of you have people in your lives you need to make an apology to. Some of us have people in our lives that need to hear from us. Maybe they haven't heard from us in a long time, and the only time they ever hear from us is when we're getting on them. Where have you been? Won't you come back? I hear my my own voice. I mean, quite literally, I'm the one that just said it, but I know that there are people in my life that when I say, hey, I want to get together with you, I want to spend some time with you, they're thinking, uh-oh, here he goes again. He's going to be giving me a hard time about where I've been. Shame on us. If that's what is thought of us because of our own action. Relational restoration. Generosity. Advent's always been filled with the giving of alms. We practice it virtually every time we go to the grocery store. You know, you got the little red kettle and the, the bell ringing. Sometimes you'll hear a trumpet. I, I think Walmart here in Dallas, like really, they deliver well for the Salvation Army. They bring somebody out like in a full uniform and a hat and they've got the, the horns going and whatnot. Um, generosity generosity this is a season that as we spend time in repentance as we practice covenantal faithfulness as we seek relational restoration it's good for our hearts and souls to be generous to the Lord's work and to be generous to others that he brings along our paths there'll be opportunities throughout this season of Advent to be generous And we ought to practice generosity. Those are, again, some foundational applications that do come directly from the prophet Malachi that I think if we start putting into practice in our lives today and practice them this week, we will find ourselves walking through this season of Advent intentionally and in a way that is prepared for the Lord to move in our lives and to move through our lives in the lives of others. You and I are an awful lot like Malachi's contemporaries. 
You can read about some of them in, in the books Ezra and Nehemiah. But Israel has come back from captivity. They've, they've come back from Babylonian exile and they've settled back in the land. And the crazy thing is that they are a tiny, tiny, well, they're, they're a pretty numerous group of people, but they've got a tiny, tiny plot of land down in Judea. And they're doing what they can to restore order to their life as God's people. But they find themselves under the thumb of a larger culture and of a distant government. They are not in control of their own lives. They do not write their own laws. They have to obey the orders of others, people who are distant, people who in some ways are tyrants. They're just struggling to survive as a people. Sounds an awful lot like the church today, right? Just struggling to survive. Growing cynical, frustrated. Developing a complex of everybody's out to get us. And we don't have what we ought to have. We ought to have more power, more influence in the world. Part of the problem is that when we had it, we blew it, as did Israel. So candidly, for Malachi's contemporaries, as is, I'm afraid, the case for us, there's this overwhelming sense of God being absent. David John Oswald wrote a book on Malachi, Where Are You, God?, He's, uh, I remember being in class with him, Andrew, and him saying, well, the title's a bit misleading. That's not what the book is all about. I wanted to title it, Does God Pay? He said, but the editor chose, where are you, God? It seemed a little more provocative. I think does God pay is maybe a little bit more provocative. I don't know. But there's this overwhelming sense of God being absent. He seems so distant and disinterested, which is perhaps even worse. Does he care? You ever feel like that yourself? Where is he and why won't he just show up? Does he just not even care? If so, Advent's for you. Because Advent is about the promise of his return and his presence. Which is to underscore the not-yetness of this in-between time. He is coming again because he's not here in that sense right now. And so we practice the patience of waiting, of longing. And we're not the best at doing that. Malachi chapter 3 begins kind of in the middle of a thought. Throughout Malachi's prophecy, you've got this dialogue that's happening between Yahweh and his people. And you've got all these rhetorical questions that are being raised. And it's, it's like a drama that's unfolding. It's all in prose, which is strange for an Old Testament prophet. There's, there is no poetry in it. There's kind of a poetic movement to it, but there's no strict poetry. But chapter 2 ends with this accusation. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? 
by saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Have you ever heard a preacher say if God doesn't smite America for its sins, he's going to have to offer an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah? That's precisely the sort of thing that Malachi's contemporaries were saying. Where's the God of justice? Why doesn't he show up? Where's he been all this time? Look at our culture. Look at the mess we're in. Look at how crooked our leaders are. You can't trust anyone in power. Where is the God of justice? That's an accusation that Yahweh, through the prophet Malachi, makes to the people of Israel who are still dragging their feet to temple, offering a measly sacrifice on the altar, shrugging their shoulders, wondering, does this even matter anymore? We're just going through these motions. Again, there's this growing cynicism. Does serving God pay? Is it worth it? It's interesting to read the book of Malachi start to finish because you realize there's an awful lot of satire that's happening in it. A lot of jabs and a lot of humor, to be honest, mocking Israel for its condition so as to arouse it, so as to wake up Israel against the people of God. Malachi is making these accusations. And some of the objects of, their, of his satirical scorn are their half-hearted, neglectful worship. Seen in their sacrifices, seen in their tithes, seen even in their attendance together. Half-hearted, neglectful worship. Another object of his satirical scorn is false teaching on the part of many of their priests. Now, if that doesn't describe the American church, I don't know what does. False teaching on the part of people who are supposed to be the go-betweens between a holy God and an unholy people. He doesn't really require you to be holy because, let's be honest, none of us are. In the crosshairs of Malachi are also rampant divorce for pleasure's sake. Just because we want to. We're not happy anymore. We don't bring the same feelings we used to bring. Why not? Why can't I have what I want? I'm the, the captain of my own ship. I am the writer and determiner of my own destiny. I can do what I want. And so Malachi has a lot to say. I uh, sent out an email a couple of days ago introducing Advent and drawing attention to the beginning of it. 
one of the things I reminded that I asked you to remind me to do is to tell you about the punctuation of uh, that hymn, that, that carol. I don't know whether to call it a hymn or a carol. God rest ye merry gentlemen. And for years, I tell you, Bill, I, I printed in the bulletin as it's supposed to be printed, and I think it looks like a terrible typo. And they're going to think I'm a numbskull, right? Because you would think, God rest ye merry gentlemen, you would think it'd be like, God rest ye merry gentlemen, because, right, you're merry gentlemen. That's not how it's punctuated, because that's not, not how it was intended. It was intended as, God rest ye kind of in a merrily way, gentlemen. And so it, it's funny, it always kind of gets under my skin that I've got to put this typo in the bulletin, but it's not a typo. But from that, that, that line, from that song, from that, whether it's a hymn or a carol, this holy tide of Christmas, all other doth deface. I remember uh, a few years ago, heading to church one Sunday morning, and I'm passing, I'm leaving our neighborhood, and I pass a house, and they've got an, I kid you not, they've got like a Christmas yard sale going on. On a Sunday morning, 10 a.m., right? And they've got beautiful, like, handmade stuff for Christmas gifts and all this sort of stuff in somebody's yard. And you know what I thought because it's exactly what you would have thought. You're selling Christmas stuff rather than going to church? What in the world? And it hit me like a ton of bricks in that moment. We do that you and I are here on Sunday morning, but how many times do we do that in countless other ways? We profane the sacred. We deface what God meant for good. We get so caught up in the fast-pacedness, the busyness, making sure that everything's this and that. And look, I've already been there. And we get so overwhelmed and so like frazzled. The Christmas tide begins on Christmas Day, so we're not yet there. But we do that with Advent all the time. We deface it. Be sure as we step into this holy season to not deface this holy season in your life. Walk through it, move through it intentionally, carefully, joyfully. Do all the stuff, eat all the foods, go to all the parties, whatever. But make sure you're carving out time for foundational things. And so Israel was tempted toward compromise in order just to make life a little better bit easier to bear. And how often do we do the same? Life can be unbearable. And if we would just compromise a little bit, if we would just not do what we know we ought to do because it'd be so much easier just to not this one time. It's, um, I was interested this week looking at the lectionary readings um, for this week 
the epistle reading was from Romans chapter 13. The Apostle Paul says, You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. All those things are ways that people living in the world try to cope with life, try to fill it up with something to make it fun for the moment. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now, flesh, he's not talking about your material body. He's not talking about putting no stock in being a physical person. You were created with this human flesh. He's talking about the flesh of the heart that says, I can do what I want. I can have my own way. I can figure out my life. I can figure out what's best for me. I can I can make my own dreams and I can realize them because I can. We live in a world that is so filled with the need for comfort. We seek comfort all over the place. We run in a thousand directions to try to comfort our own lives because we're overtaxed and we're over anxious and we're over scheduled. We're over everything. We've got misplaced priorities. We know indeed what it is to live beneath life's crushing load. But the hymn writer calls out, Oh, rest beside the weary road. And hear the angels sing. There is a song happening over all of creation that if we would just stop and listen, we might catch it. There is this overwhelming need for comfort in life, but there's also, there's, we find within ourselves a, a longing for joy. Advent calls us to learn how to long well. To seek joy, not in some frenzied, panicked way, as though it's something that we can get for ourselves and make for ourselves. We've got we to create joy in the season. We've got to create magic. If we don't do all this, it's not going to be filled with happiness. But longing well is about seeking joy where he's promised us we would find it. Which, of course, requires listening to him. And which, of course, requires doing as he says. Lighting the candle of hope this morning, it's important for us to think about the nature of hope and the importance of hope. And it's interesting that Advent is historically a season of fasting but funny thing is we don't do a lot of fasting during this season 
right? Rather, instead, we, we think of Advent as a season of celebration, a, a, a season of feasting, of parties, of merrymaking. We go from this to that, and we fill up our, our calendar with all the things, the, the festivities, and trust me, I love that stuff. But we don't hope well. Because hope means being without. If you hope for something, you don't yet have it, right? That's kind of the nature of it. Not only are we rarely without in the land of plenty, but when we do happen to be without, it doesn't sit very well with us, does it? We don't do without very well. Just think about an evening meal. Not long ago, the kids and I were making homemade pizzas. And this was a, quite, a, quite a bit ago. Um, but as we, were, as we were waiting, I commented that I hope they turn out well. I was feeling a little bit unsure about myself. We had made the dough and the sauce. I knew the sauce would be good, Bill, but the dough, I just wasn't quite sure. You see, we were making deep dish pizzas and... I don't make pizzas from scratch all that often, but when I do, it's normally hand-tossed, and I know how it's going to turn out. But we were making deep dish. We really, I think it was Emery, really wanted deep dish pizzas. So, and Lindsay, I think, was at a ladies' retreat. This was three years ago or something like that. Man, I hope they turn out well. But with my mouth... I was saying, I hope they turn out well. All the while in my heart, I knew that if they didn't, I could always order pizzas in a pinch. I could get perfectly cooked deep dish pizzas. And I could even have them in hand and on the table pretty quickly. Not a problem. And so what did, what did it really mean for me to hope that they turned out well? The hope of Advent is something of an entirely different nature than saying, I hope this turns out all right. There's, of course, some relation, but Advent hope is hope in which every bit of who we are and every bit of what we hope for this world is brought to bear before the return of a king. We hope actively. Advent forces us to wait. And waiting is necessary for hope. Because hope is unrealized, at least for now. Because again, we live in that in-between. And yet... Hope is something that we do enjoy now. It's something that sustains us now. It's something that brings the meaning of the not yet into our present experience now. And so the hymn writer also calls us, declares to us that there's a time coming when peace shall over all the earth its ancient splendors fling, and the whole world will give back the song which now the angels sing. 
Malachi is calling the people of Israel to put their trust in Yahweh. To remain faithful to Him. To lean into trusting Him. To long for Him because He is going to step into history and put the world back together. And it's interesting that as in Malachi, as the need for Israel's redemption expands, as it becomes more and more obvious, man, they are a jacked up people. They are so broken and cynical and so faithless and arrogant in their accusations against God. As that need expands, the promise of the coming Messiah is clarified. He's coming to put the world back together. He is coming to judge. And he is coming, and before his coming, there is another messenger who is going to make the way ready for him, who's going to be calling Israel to repentance, who's going to be putting relationships back together. It's interesting that Yahweh never seems content to leave us alone in despair. He promises Israel that he is their Lord of hosts, which is an interesting phrase, most commonly found in the book of Malachi. Not in Isaiah, although it's a lot in Isaiah. Not in the Psalms, although it's there quite a bit. But in Malachi, that, that phrase, Lord of hosts, is used over and over and over again. I think it's the, the New Living Translation, uh, Chris, that, 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 that uh, translates it, the Lord of heaven's armies. I love it. Israel, living in the backwaters of the Persian Empire, tiny little track of land, measly little temple that they've scrapped back together, dragging their feet back to church, wondering, does it even matter? They have no army. They have no way of defending themselves. They have no power. They have no might. They have no influence in the world. They are forgettable. But Yahweh promises them, you do not fight for yourselves. You do not defend yourselves. But I am the Lord of heaven's armies. And I am coming. And I will judge. And I will put the world back together. He calls for them to wait in hope. He warns them that he is coming. That when he comes to set things right, it will necessarily involve dealing with what's wrong. And so Advent calls us to bring all that is wrong in the world, yes, but also all that is wrong in our own hearts and lives to the one who is coming to bring it in repentance, to bring it in trust, and to bring it with the longing of hope, says, Lord, come quickly, but prepare me to be ready for when you arrive. And so as his people were called to wait in hope. Father, we thank you for 
each other. We thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning. We thank you for your word, for the call to repentance that we hear in your word, for the call to trust that we hear in your word. for the call to put our hope in you that we hear in your word. So Lord, we pray that you would help us do just that. Help us to to draw near to you in trusting expectation. Help us to bring all of who we are, the good, the bad, the ugly, our cynicism, our fear, our despair, our cowardice, whatever it might be, help us to bring it all to you as a sacrifice to you. Lord, help us in these weeks to in some small way bear our world to you. The world of our neighbors, the world of our coworkers, the the world of our family members, our friends, Rather than lashing out, help us to stop and long for the fullness of your grace. For the fullness of your kingdom to be realized. Lord, let us not just rush through these coming weeks. Let us not just plow on ahead for Christmas Day. Lord, help us to become people who know how to wait well. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.